Welcome to the November 4th edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, and I'm joined by Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker. Good afternoon. How are you, Pat? Good to, good to see you. We're, uh, we're doing well here. We've uh, survived uh, an overnight uh, turbulence. Uh, I don't know if you, you caught it on, on your TV screen last night. Uh, <laughs> it was an interesting night for all, I think. Well, the interest keeps going. That's uh, the, you know, who knows? This is not going to be over for a few days, I don't think. It was yeah, a little bit of deja vu all over again relative to 2016 in terms of the results not being known for some time. Yeah, a, a little anxiety going around, depending on uh, which, which side of the aisle you're on. Uh, just uh, for record purposes, it's November 4th uh, in the afternoon uh, for those uh, joining us uh, at a later viewing on our youtube.com slash TNWAC version of the Global News Review. Uh, we are awaiting the uh, results of the counting in the presidential election, and we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. But today we're going to talk about the uh, international reaction and uh, uh, what's, what's the view around the world on uh, what's happening in election 2020. Um, any uh, any opening uh, comments about what uh, what we've been seeing and, and uh, should expect to uh, to see in the coming days, or you just want to jump into it? You, you fellows got comments? I'll throw out an opening comment. I think it's going to be a, a rocky road here for the next few days, and then my my sense is that uh, Biden is going to get to two seventy and maybe just a little bit over in the electoral vote count, and will be unofficially or officially declared to be the president, but that's not gonna end it. So there'll be legal challenges and there'll be a lot of antics going on from the other side who will accuse the election of being stolen or somebody brought in massive amounts of ballots, et cetera. It, it's a much, much closer race than I figured it was going to be. And the, the democratic tsunami with the blue water didn't really happen that much. And, it looks like we're going to have divided government with the White House and the House being democratic, and we'll have the Senate again controlled by the Republicans with Mitch McConnell at the helm. So it's going to be a rocky transition, and then once we get into it, it's going to be a kind of divided government. So I, I don't know how it's all going to work out. Yeah, and I'd add a couple of things if it's okay. Uh, sure. And of course, they're still counting, but uh, earlier this morning, Biden surpassed uh, and became the president, or nominee, I should say, the person running for president who has received the most aggregate votes uh, in U.S. history. And I think the last number I saw was 69.5 or 6 million, which was a couple hundred thousand above what uh, President Obama got. So uh, Biden now holds that uh, record. And and related to that, uh, Kanye West was on the ballot in 12 states, and he received in the aggregate, still counting, but he has 59,731 votes. And it's interesting that his strongest state performance was in Tennessee, where he got a little <laughs> over 10,000 votes. So I just passed that along in case anybody uh, was interested in that. Was, uh, was Pat Paulson on the ballot? <laughs> Good question. For those, for those of a certain age? The one other thing I wanted to mention is that right now, of course, you can, if you were in Las Vegas, you could walk up to one of the casinos and place a bet on who's going to win from this point forward. And the odds that they're offering as of noon today uh, translate into a 75 to 80 percent probability that Biden's going to prevail. So 
if the uh, Las Vegas betters are right, uh, Biden still appears to be a heavy favorite. Yeah. Was was that a, uh, a a web page that you had bookmarked when you were in the world of finance? <laughs> I, you know, it's one of those pop-ups I get every day. <laughs> Speaking of finance, Brad, why don't you just give us a, a, a brief uh, tutorial on what's going on in uh, the market and, and uh, the forecast for the economy, taxes, and et cetera, uh, looking at the, the potential for a Biden administration. Well, it was interesting last night on that. I'll just make a couple of very quick comments. Last night, before the, uh, you know, probably about 6 p.m. Central Time, before election results started being reported, the futures market for the S&P 500 started trading up, meaning that it was going to be a big day in the market uh, today. Uh, and then once uh, some of the results were reported where it was not going to be a blue wave and actually President Trump was doing better than uh, the pollsters anticipated, the S&P 500 futures started dropping. In fact, they, and, and for a daily uh, uh, percentage amount, they dropped quite a bit and went back to uh, even. Uh, but today, the S&P, I mean, sorry, the Dow is up over 600 points. Uh, the NASDAQ at noon was up, uh, I think, over 3%. And I think that that reflects uh, two things. It certainly reflects the market's view that a Biden victory is going to be good for the economy, at least in the short run. And I think that that is for uh, two reasons. One, the Democrats, the market believes at least, the Democrats are going to provide more stimulus, pandemic-related stimulus uh, in coming months uh, that will be good for business. And secondly, the market's probably positive on the Senate seemingly uh, uh, or probably remaining uh, Republican, because that will put uh, the kibosh on tax increases and additional business regulations and so forth. So the market's pretty positive on where we are right now, at least at this moment. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, uh, that update. And, uh, you know, I, I know Ambassador Bowers was one of Kanye's uh, votes. I don't know who the 9900 <laughs> other ones were. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into it here. Uh, first, I, I just want to uh, ask our viewers to mark their calendars. Uh, December 9th at 6 p.m. That's December 9th. We have a, a special program, the United Nations at 75. The journey continues. This is one of the collaborations we are doing with uh, six other World Affairs Councils in the network of World Affairs Councils. And this will be a celebration of the 75th anniversary of the United Nations and uh, to gain an understanding of what the challenges are going forward. Uh, our keynote remarks will be delivered by Ambassador Thomas Pickering, who uh, we had the great fortune of having on our election 2020 program um, a week ago on America's Place in the World. Ambassador Pickering was the US ambassador and permanent representative to the United Nations back during the time of the, uh, the Desert Storm uh, Gulf War and uh, he uh, marshaled uh, the, the wherewithal in the diplomatic community in, in uh, New York at the UN uh, for the coalition that uh, was involved in that. In addition to Ambassador Pickering, uh, we have the French ambassador, uh, former French ambassador, Gerard Arrault, who was the French permanent representative to the United Nations and the uh, ambassador to the United States. Uh, along with uh, them will be uh, Linda Fasulo, the uh, NPR correspondent for the UN. Uh, she's been a longtime uh, journalist at the UN, has written a couple of books about the, how the United Nations works. And uh, Mr. Samuel Roche from the Truman Library. And our historians among us uh, will know that uh, the United Nations has its roots in the, uh, the, the uh, Truman administration era and the Truman uh, uh, 
Presidential Library in Missouri has uh, a great collection of UN related materials. So uh, Samuel Roche, the supervisory archivist at the library will be with us. Uh, and then uh, January 28th, uh, mark on your calendar, the Future of Korea Project will have representatives from the Korean Embassy, uh, the State Department and the Korean Economic Institute talking about US-Korea relationship uh, in the evening. Uh, that'll be preceded by a, a meeting earlier in the day between business people. Uh, let me uh, remind you that uh, our regular programming, uh, Global Nashville with Carl Dean next week, he'll be talking with a panel of uh, four members of the Kurdish community. We'll be talking about Little Kurdistan in Nashville and uh, what uh, what's happening in, in that uh, thriving and, and populous community, one of the, the major uh, uh, immigrant communities uh, in our, our fair city. On uh, December 8th, uh, Ms. Kate Burke, the Chief Operating Officer of Lyons Bernstein will be uh, talking with Carl about what's happening uh, in Nashville uh, as far as AB's uh, relocation to, uh, to downtown. And a reminder that every uh, Wednesday, um, Ambassador Dick Bowers, Dr. Breck Walker and I will be here dutifully reporting uh, the global news. And uh, you can check the tnwac.org uh, slash calendar page to uh, get the details on uh, the uh, dates we might be skipping a day due to the holidays coming up uh, so that you don't check in and we're not here. Um, and you can also sign up uh, for programs there. Uh, lastly, let me uh, remind you that the uh, Academic WorldQuest competition is coming up and WorldQuest is uh, our academic, um, our education outreach flagship program involves high school students uh, we have a practice round in December, a championship round in uh, February. It's uh, kind of like a quiz bowl, multiple choice questions. So we encourage you to uh, contact uh, students and teachers you may know in your area and invite them to get involved in academic world quest. Uh, it's a great uh, opportunity for young people to get involved with uh, what's going on in the world. And lastly, let me uh, make a pitch for membership. We are a membership organization. Uh, there are many uh, members only benefits, one of which will be a special members only night in uh, January. Uh, Professor Thomas Schwartz, a distinguished historian from Vanderbilt, will be talking to a Zoom meeting of members only about uh, his uh, current class on uh, the history of the Cold War and teaching whole Cold War history to students who may not have much of a connection with the Cold War. Uh, so uh, check out membership benefits. Uh, we have a newsletter, a custom newsletter for our members. And of course, the world famous Tennessee World Affairs Council coffee mug. Um, Dick, I think we still owe you a coffee mug from Debate Watch Bingo. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll Bring it on. That. Let's do it. We'll have that coming to you. Okay. Uh, without uh, further ado, let me uh, ask uh, Dr. Breck Walker to talk about our um, uh, question of the week. And uh, Breck, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks, Pat. Um, let me remind everyone, if I could, that uh, uh, that uh, you can receive the TenWAC What in the World weekly quiz by subscribing to our email list on the TenWAC.org website. Now, today's question comes from that weekly quiz and is our routine. We present a question drawn from reports published by our friends at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And here's the question. An event last week at the U.S. Institute of Peace highlighted the 20th anniversary of this action 
which represented the first time that this body had addressed the disproportionate and unique impact of armed conflict on women and girls. It uh, also recognized the critical role women can, can and do play in peace building. And the possible answers are A, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, B, Amendment to the WHO, the World Health Organization Charter, C, uh, United States uh, Congressional Resolution during the Year of Women, and D, President Clinton's Executive Order 15261 on Women and Peace Building. And we'll have our answer at the end of the program. Thanks, Pat. Great. Uh, Dick, uh, do you want to give us a, a brief uh, warm up of what we're going to talk about today? And uh, Well, we're going to talk about uh, what's going on around the world as far as they're looking at and digesting U.S. elections. So how's, how's the world see us? Um, what is right and what is wrong? There are some places that are disappointed that Mr. Trump appears to be not in the lead. Other places are very happy that he's not in the lead. So we'll just kind of roam around the world and talk about what's going on. And I'll just throw out that, you know, until you tell you how old I am, I went to the convention in San Francisco with Barry Goldwater back in 1964. So I thought you, long... thought you were going to you were going to say the the UN Charter Convention, but <laughs> no, I no, I'm not quite. Well, actually, I've been to the been to San Francisco to the Opera House where the where the Charter was signed, but it, it was a little bit before my time. Well, you're a California kid, so you've been all those places. Yeah, Berkeley well, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, let's uh, jump jump in, and uh, this is uh, as as Ambassador Bowers mentioned. This will. Uh, uh, apart from our normal three topic uh, deep dive into the news, because after the uh, election uh, day yesterday, and even though we're still waiting to see the final results, uh, we, we note that uh, the world is, is watching in, in a way that uh, sort of rivals the way they pay attention to their own elections. Um, yeah. Certainly not uh, in, in any reflection of the way the United States looks at uh, what's going on in other countries. But as, uh, as we uh, look at the presidential election that's taking shape, um, we note that uh, foreign policy towards our allies is, is squarely in the view of countries around the world. Um, for example, uh, in Australia and Indonesia, uh, crowds were gathered around television and cafes trying to get a glimpse of states turning red or blue. Uh, a lot of correspondents on news shows were giving uh, tutorial, uh, tutorials on how the American electoral, uh, electoral college system works and, and why, um, you know, there's a big map of the United States and most of it's red and little spots of blue, but that the, uh, the number of uh, influential electoral college um, members from those small geographic areas are equivalent to larger Places, for example, Montana has just a handful of electoral votes, and it's uh, you know as as big as uh, California. I know Dick is going to correct me on that, but uh, California holding what is it, 55 electoral votes. So um, viewers of, of the news around around the world uh, were reported to have been paying great attention, trying to learn what's going on in our election. Uh, many of them. Uh, were concerned about the uh, the threats of violence. Uh, they saw scenes of uh, people getting armed up and 
boarding up and uh, fences going up. Uh, so it, uh, it, it really belied the, uh, the American promise of democracy that many countries around the world uh, had admired for, for some time. Uh, to, to quote uh, a, an observer in Le Mans, the, the French newspaper, who was talking about uh, President Trump warning uh, that uh, the, he was going to have the Supreme Court shut down the vote uh, at 2 a.m. this morning. And he said that uh, Donald Trump is playing with fire in a context that is already quite explosive. So, uh, you know, people around the world, our friends and our adversaries are, are watching, and, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. And we're going to tick through uh, some topical areas and some uh, geographic areas. I'll just start out with a couple of, uh, of developments. The uh, Asian stock markets are reported uh, as having mixed uh, trading as, as uh, the stock markets were awaiting uh, re reaction to the uh, election. And as uh, Breck mentioned, uh, um, here in, in the US, the, the stock markets were taking a positive approach that the, and the market is up significantly today. But markets around the, the world are, um, they have a different calculus in, in how they're, they're looking at the election. Meanwhile, in China, the state media, there, there was a little comment from the official government, but state media, which reflects uh, the position of the Communist Party, uh, was saying that the United States has serious, uh, serious problems and they, they uh, played upon, uh, disparaged uh, the notion of American democracy. Um, in in uh, Moscow, pro-Kremlin media was talking about the, uh, the likelihood that there would be chaos and fighting in the streets. Um, meanwhile, the, the Brazil's president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro uh, criticized Vice President uh, Biden for his calls uh, to protect the Amazon from overdevelopment. So you can see that in, in many countries, uh, not only were they observing uh, our election process and being critical of the conditions surrounding it, the threat of violence, the threat of uh, armies of lawyers going to court, um, the disparagement of, of the democracy. There's also a lot of conversation about uh, individual um, prospects for this or that candidate relative to that country. Um, so for example, uh, some, some uh, friends of the United States were concerned about the continued position of the US in its uh, withdrawal from the World Health Organization and the, the Paris uh, Peace, or excuse me, Paris Climate Accord. Um, and, and I'll note that uh, midnight last night was the effective date for uh, the United States leaving the uh, the Paris Climate Accord, so um, that's uh, that's how some of the uh, some of the countries around the world uh, were looking at the, uh, what's happening in, in the United States vis-a-vis -vis our election. Dick, do you want to uh, pick up with? Uh, well, just just start. I think you know my my take here. The Canadians are going to be very happy that if Mr. Biden succeeds to become president, and it appears that 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 is on the tracks to happen. But we have to be patient and get all the votes counted and all the various legal challenges taken care of. Um, the United States has has gone from being a beacon to the rest of the world and. Uh, first time in my life, a couple few months back, the, the word pity was used to describe the United States. That you know, we just didn't seem to have our act together and what was going on and why it's happening. Um, the Mexicans, I think, are going to be a little happier that Mr. Biden comes in. So, and Latin America may get a little bit more attention than it's gotten under the Trump administration, where the uh, entire attention seemed to be 
involved with the flow of migrants out of Central America and Mexico. The rest of the world, the Israelis probably are not happy. They, they got along well with Mr. Trump because Mr. Trump gave them, gave them some things that they wanted, like support on the settlements on the West Bank and moving the embassy of the United States to Jerusalem, which effectively uh, negates the international community's desire to try to have Jerusalem continue to be an open city. So there's a lot out there for people to chew on. Um, one of the things that sort of, I, I, you, you mentioned tutorials, how we do elections is something that the rest of the world really doesn't understand. And this whole role of the electoral college and how that works and, and uh, the power shift that the electoral college gives to small states because everybody gets at least three elector votes and then you build on, on that. Uh, regardless of population. So uh, my sense is that Mr. Biden will come in and will reverse a whole lot of stuff that Mr. Trump has done. Uh, for example, uh, we'll probably try to go back into the Paris Agreement. Um, we'll stay in the WHO, will reinforce what we have done to take international institutions and support them. And there'll be a lot of talk about supporting our NATO allies, uh, drawing lines in the sand against dictators and things of that sort. So it's going to be an interesting time and just getting through the next few weeks is going to be a real roller coaster that the world is going to be watching. So that's Preliminary comments. Right. Yeah. Pat, I'd add to that if I could. Um, just there, there was a recent opinion poll published just a couple of days ago in a German scholarly uh, journal uh, that uh, polled uh, the EU, people in the EU, uh, on who their preferred presidential candidate was in the United States. And Biden came out with 45% of the vote. Trump came out with 17% of the vote vote and neither came out with 38% uh, of the vote. So I think that's, that's uh, interesting in terms of, uh, and Dick mentioned, uh, how dysfunctional much of Europe views the United States. And in the commentary that I was reading, of course, most uh, leaders of our allies are reluctant at this point to say much one way or the other. They are pretty tight-lipped about it because they don't want to uh, do anything that might cause whoever ends up as president to uh, uh, get mad at them about that. So they're pretty tight lipped, but there's a lot of commentary from legislators and newspapers and so forth. And the one theme that keeps returning in the material I was reading was a concern in the short run that uh, the American election becomes hugely contested. Uh, some level of chaotic street violence breaks out and that serves as a tremendous propaganda victory for uh, those countries like China and Russia to meet, uh, to, meet to mention too, that have uh, uh, more authoritarian oriented government. I think uh, the Russian press is already saying to the Russian people, aren't you glad you don't live in the United States? Bad things have happened and bad things are really coming uh, over the next uh, week or two. So I think one uh, EU politician said that uh, if American democracy 
which is the epitome of, uh, uh, of, of at least how Europe looks at it, is the epitome of democracy and democratic institutions. If that descends into a chaotic situation, uh, what does that mean for the rest of us? It pulls us all down. It hurts all of our credibility, and it gives support and momentum to uh, those nationalist and populist uh, that are beginning to arise in parts of Western Europe. Uh, it gives support to their movements, uh, uh, and uh, so said this uh, politician. So uh, those would be my comments on that. I did have one uh, one quote. You all may remember. Do you all remember Amanda Knox? by chance, who was the yeah. foreign exchange student uh, from the United States that uh, was in Italy and was accused of uh, uh, murdering a fellow exchange student and was convicted and arrested. And, uh, and then uh, the United States got involved and that court decision was eventually overturned. Well, Amanda Knox has tweeted uh, what she thinks about the election and her tweet says, uh, Whatever happens, the next four years can't be as bad as my four years study abroad that I did in Italy, right? Question mark. And I like that quote because it is very Trumpian in its self-focus. Uh, so I pass that along uh, as well. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks for that, Breck. I'll, I'll uh, mention, mention a couple of uh, uh, citations here from, from a BBC uh, piece. And, and I think this reflects the fact that uh, many of our uh, allies and adversaries are looking at uh, the election as a as sort of a uh, mile marker in their relationship uh, with uh, with the United States, either a chance to reset the relationship if uh, if there's a new administration, or simply just to uh, identify what the uh, the points of contention or, or agreement in some cases with uh, with what's happening in the United States. In uh, in France, um, uh, there was a. Uh, uh, a finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, who told um, uh, Radio Classique, whether Joe Biden or Donald Trump is elected by Americans uh, tonight or tomorrow, nothing changes this strategic fact. The American continent has detached itself from the European continent. And I think that's uh, reflective of, of the position of, uh, of a lot of our allies. Um, in, uh, in Germany, the defense minister, uh, Kramik Karrenbauer, warned that the U.S. was facing a very explosive situation and that uh, if, the, uh, if the election went to the courts, it could result in a constitutional crisis uh, that would impact uh, the United States' ability to conduct itself abroad. And uh, I, you know, I think across Europe, uh, we're seeing our, our friends there view what's been happening in the United States and the relationship with uh, the EU and NATO and individual uh, uh, bilateral relations, uh, somewhat with uh, with a sense of increased urgency and concern. We're on a rocky road. I mean, it's. Uh, I think, assuming that a that a Biden administration comes in, he's going to move quickly to try to reengage the world in a more normal fashion. So the U.S. will be back at the table with. Uh, and at a number of these institutions that we've kind of either ignored or boycotted or said, we don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. And as one of the, your colleagues in the previous program talked about, Pat, uh, you know, the question of do we have to be at the head of the table or just be at the table? And I think the key is to be at the table. But once we get at that table, 
be it the WHO or the UN or UNICEF or whatever international institution we're engaged with, we will be pulled into a leadership role because there's nobody else to lead the world like the United States does. And that is critical to our own personal national interest to have good relations with the democratic countries of the world, especially, and to have relations with non-democratic institutions and non-democratic governments where we can at least have a, a dialogue that will keep us aware of what's going on and let the other side know what we stand for and what we're all about. It's gonna take a while for that to occur. It's gonna be interesting to see how long it goes until we have the electors showing up. What is it, the 5th of December is the day they arrive in DC, I think, uh, to actually cast the votes that officially create the president-elect. So yeah, it's, it's that week. be a I long think might, time. Yeah, it's, it's uh, that week in, in, uh, in DC when they come together. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, some of our previous guests. You know, we had uh, Dr. Richard White from the Pew Research Center yeah. uh, with us for part of our election 2020 coverage. And, and uh, our viewers can uh, check out uh, the conversation with him uh, in the global issues uh, section, the uh, edition of our election 2020 special reports. Uh, but he had just finished before he, he joined us for the panel, a, an extensive Pew Research uh, project uh, gauging the, uh, uh, the support of uh, countries, our allies and adversaries uh, for US policies, the United States in general, uh, the leadership of the Trump administration. And uh, you know, this is kind of reflective of, of where the United States uh, stands in the world. 41% of the United Kingdom expressed a favorable opinion of the US, uh, the lowest percentage registered in any Pew Research Center survey ever in France, the, uh, the favorability rate was 31% of uh, French see the US positively. Uh, and that matched uh, the sad uh, ratings of 2003 at the height of US tensions with France over the Iraq war. And uh, Germans marked uh, the United States as 26% of Germans uh, viewed the US favorably. So we're, you know, we, we've got uh, some work to do with our allies and, you know, there, there may be some people who question, you know, who cares, but uh, whenever you want to get something done in the world, uh, you, need, uh, you need to have these coalitions and, and you know, our, our strongest relationship with uh, countries around the world is the NATO alliance. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's, there's some uh, rebuilding these bridges that needs to happen. Absolutely. Well, in fact, Pat, on the uh, talking again about the elections 2020 series of panels that we had, uh, one of the things that I thought that there was reasonable unanimity on among the panelists were the fears among our allies from a foreign policy perspective, the fears among our allies uh, concerning a second term Trump presidency and uh, policies that would, among other things, that he might think about, uh, that the Trump, a Trump administration might think about pulling out of NATO or at least raising issues as to whether the United States was likely to live up to its obligations to other NATO members if a crisis arose, uh, that a second Trump administration might show, uh, continue to show support for the rise of nationalism and support and at times even admiration for more authoritarian leaders like uh, 
Putin and uh, others in Eastern Europe uh, that have come to power recently, that the uh, America First program uh, could hurt them economically, that, uh, that the US is no longer under a Trump presidency uh, for better or for worse, uh, a free trade. has It does not have a free trade orientation anymore. And that is uh, something that worries a lot of the allies. That a lack of, by the Trump administration, a lack of strategic and geopolitical consultation with, uh, with the leadership of our allies. And in fact, just as Dick said a minute ago, taking the reins and exerting leadership uh, of the broad Western alliance. Uh, people no longer look to the United States uh, as they used to. And, and this didn't start with Trump. I think you could argue that that started perhaps in a big way under the presidency of George W. Bush. But uh, uh, nevertheless, people, I, th I think most leaders in, in uh, among our allies like the idea of the United States taking a leadership position. And then lastly, I think that, that people were very concerned, leadership is very concerned of how we're going to manage our relationship with China going forward, both economically and militarily or geopolitically, uh, that's going to require some nuance and uh, some great strategic thinking and having the right people in place to help you do that. And uh, I think our allies coming out of those panels, election 2020, I think there's real concern among our allies that we don't have the team to do that uh, in an effective way. Right. Well, you know, you mentioned China and the, uh, the BBC, uh, they, they highlighted the uh, Chinese uh, state-run news media as focusing uh, disparagingly on the, on the U.S. elections. Uh, they said that uh, the coverage, uh, they aired footage of the heavy police presence in Washington and protesters shoving one another near the White House, even though the actual uh, protests on, on Tuesday evening uh, were largely peaceful. Uh, the Washington Post, uh, talking about China, said that the state-run tabloid, the Global Times, declared the election looked like one in a developing nation. Uh, Meng Jiwei, deputy foreign editor of the state-run Xinhua uh, news agency, described the United States as without hope. Um, he said, it is clear the United States has problems with national competitiveness and social governance capacity and that it needs serious and profound internal reforms. And the, the, uh, this, this description uh, by, uh, by that official uh, was viewed 3.4 billion times on the Chinese social platform Weibo. Uh, so I, I guess there were a lot of Chinese who were looking at it multiple times because that's, that's a lot of uh, page views. Um, another Chinese uh, official, a former advisor to China's cabinet said that uh, they hope uh, after Biden comes back, they can at least resume high-level dialogue uh, and noted that Biden wants to compete with China, but also collaborate. And that's how we frame the relationship too. To see the democratic system in the world's most powerful country go off the rails is not a good thing. So that's, that's the view from, uh, from China. Um, they, uh, they may be seeing a, a relationship with Biden as a better deal than what they've uh, uh, had with the president. I think, Pat, a lot of it, it seems to me that a lot of the sort of functioning countries in the world uh, saw Mr. Trump as being chaotic and erratic. And, and what does he stand for? What can we expect from that man? So the idea of kind of going back to statecraft and diplomacy and having things done in a, a manner which 
normal countries do things, I think is going to be very much welcomed by most countries around the world. And I think that Mr. Biden, again, assuming he ends up in office, he will move quickly to appoint some very seasoned and uh, rational people to senior positions and engage the world again. Yeah. Dick, on the other side of the aisle, uh, there are those who uh, look forward to a, a second term for President Trump. Uh, the Washington Post piece that I was talking about mentioned that in India, where uh, President Trump found uh, friends in the Hindu nationalist Prime Minister Narendra, Narendra Modi's right-wing leading pro-government group, uh, they're hoping for a second term for President Trump, despite the fact that uh, the vice presidential candidate uh, Kamala Harris uh, has Indian roots, which many in India have, have been celebrating. Um, one, one fringe group called the, uh, the Hindu Army hosted a prayer ceremony to boost Trump's chances at the polls, saying that uh, Donald Trump is the savior of humanity. So there, you know, he's got his, <laughs> his advocates uh, in India. In, uh, in Israel, uh, settlers in the West Bank uh, also gathered to pray for Trump's reelection. Uh, settler leaders have expressed concern that a Trump loss could mean a backpedaling of the U.S. Embassy, as you mentioned, Dick, and renewed U.S. criticism of uh, Jewish settlements in the West Bank. And I'll, I'll mention lastly that uh, in Slovenia, the uh, homeland of uh, First Lady Melania Trump, the uh, Slovenian Prime Minister, Janis Jansa, tweeted, go win at real Donald Trump. So there was at least one one tweet from uh, uh, Slovenia well, in support. Well, of, there, uh, there are going to be a number of people that are you know, assuming that Mr. Trump uh, loses that are, that are going to be sad that that's, for example, the, the folks with the chainsaws that are working away at the Amazon rainforest right now, I, I think that's going to be something that the, the Biden administration would try to discuss with the Brazilians, say, hey, you know, we need to do something about that. Um, the Latin Americans as a whole, I think countries, the Venezuelans, uh, I don't know where they're going. That's going to be difficult. Bolivia has, has basically gone back to a center-left government and had a, a peaceful election and transition of power. So that's going to be going. Chile is having a hard time, but they're moving. Um, and they've had a recent plebiscite on renewing their constitution, which was left over from the days of Pinochet and the dictatorship of the military. So Brazil, Bolsonaro is a hard right guy and he liked Mr. Trump. Same, I think when you jump over to Europe, the Hungarian leader is the same sort of populist guy. And so those folks are gonna, look at a Biden win as not really in their interests. But I think most of the rest of the world is going to see that, they, well, maybe the United States has gained its senses again and is going to go back to doing things in a normal fashion in the international arena. Yeah. Um, Pat, uh, related to that, I just add uh, a couple of interesting things coming out of the Russian media uh, over the last 24 hours. And one is that some of the Kremlin-backed uh, media sources are suggesting that, uh, at least from a popular vote standpoint today, it's so similar to what it was uh, in 2016 
that they're making the argument that uh, the Russian media is making the argument that in some sense that proves that Russian interference uh, in the U.S. elections in 2016 and even in 2020 are more a figment of uh, imaginations over here than they reflect, uh, uh, you know, actual fact. And the second thing is the Russian media is portraying Putin as uh, a little bit more ambivalent about who gets elected than I would have thought, saying that uh, Putin has been all in all disappointed in Trump because Trump did not, uh, uh, he was not successful in improving relations, bilateral relations between the United States and Russia. And in fact, Russia has been beset by sanctions imposed by the United States government uh, throughout the Trump administration and Trump has not been able to fix that. So they're saying, we don't really care who wins. Uh, in some respects, we we're, we don't don't uh, think we necessarily want Trump to win. We want somebody we can do business with. Me me thinks thou doth protest too much. Um, Mr. Mr. Putin has certainly gotten a great deal out of uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, we're still wondering what happened at the Helsinki uh, summit meeting in which the two of them went off to a room together and there were no notes and and no disclosure of what the conversations were. Multiple conversations with uh, the Russian leader uh, hosting the Russian foreign minister and Ambassador Kislyak in the Oval Office. I mean, the list goes on and on of bizarre behavior of a president of the United States relative to the, uh, the president of Russia. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the fractures in the Western alliance, and uh, you know, there's, there's no doubt that there's, there's something um, and, and national security professionals have been saying this all along. There's, there's something unexplained in the relationship between the Oval Office and the Kremlin. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me too about talking about how the world views all this, the, the capability of the world to watch what's going on in the United States in real time. Uh, that's a phenomenon that's, that's you know, continuing to grow. But, you know, if you, you go back I, my first election overseas was in 1968, and I was in Panama. And I, at that time, we had a, a very small consulate right on the Costa Rican border, and I was sent up to babysit that consulate for a few weeks. And it just happened to be in November when the elections. And we had a single sideband radio that we were trying to listen in to the Voice of America uh, feed about what's going on with the election. And we had a big blackboard where we had Nixon and Humphrey, and then they had the states. And as the, as the uh, voting tallies came in, we'd write them on the board. You know, it's very different than the kind of way we do it now, where instantaneously, you're sitting wherever you are in the world, you know, you can zoom into Fox News or CNN or whatever. And, and find out what's going on. And that's an open, transparent thing that I think is good for the world to see how uh, legalistically open and transparent our elections are. And especially what's going on today as the cameras go inside some of the areas where people are actually counting the ballots and the safeguards that everybody has in place to take care of those things. So, but we are, yeah, one of the uh, second thought that I have is that we are increasingly becoming a polarized nation where the cities are democratically inclined and the countryside is not. 
Mr. Trump won Tennessee by 61% of the vote. Uh, if you look at you know, Davidson County, 60 some percent went to Biden. But Blunt County, Campbell County, Cock County, all of the rural areas in Tennessee overwhelmingly went to Mr. Trump. So I don't know how a new administration is going to be able to quickly overcome that. I think America has to, to have to decide what kind of country we want to be and how civil we want to be to each other. And it's going to take a while to overcome all of these divisions. All right. Well, it's time to wrap up. Uh, Breck, do you want to take a whack at the uh, summary for us today? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple, three things that I'm coming away with, and you all hop in, please. But uh, one is, and stating the obvious, is that a presidential election is a big darn event throughout the world because the U.S. has such uh, a dominant influence throughout the world. And I would say that uh, that uh, certainly in Western Europe, uh, people pay almost as much attention to our presidential election as they might uh, to their own. Uh, the second thing I think is that at least our allies want, need, uh, greatly desire the United States to have a competent federal government, a competent presidency, a competent Congress that is thoughtful and makes good decisions and collaborates and uh, uh, and our ally and our and our, our enemies uh, don't want that. They want the reverse. They'd like to see chaos and dysfunction and and uh, the U.S. the U.S. government brought into disrepute uh, uh, and so forth. And even more than that, I think that our allies and the democratic side of the world wants to see the United States as a as a dominant nation. They want to see the U.S. as a very successful economy because that's going to benefit. Uh, others throughout the world. They want to see the U.S. with a with a dominant military because they have confidence that the U.S. is gonna, not going to use that military to, uh, uh, in many instances, to uh, for nefarious purposes. Uh, they, uh, they they want the United States in collaboration, but they want the United States to assume Western leadership. I think, and and uh, and they want the United States even to serve from time to time as the world's policeman to step in when nobody else will and say this is not right. And uh, uh, and I think that particularly an election that becomes so divided, those global feelings about who we are and what the world expects of us really come to the forefront. And in one sense, it makes you kind of uh, or makes me, I should say, kind of proud. Uh, but in another sense, it's a great responsibility that we seem to be uh, not living up to right now. Yeah, Dick, any uh, last thoughts? Uh, I'm, I'm with uh, with Dr. Walker on all that. Uh, you know, I think the world needs leadership, and one just look at the COVID response. There's nobody in charge of trying to make it happen, and it's just going to get worse. Um, I would hope that Mr. Biden comes in and, and really starts working with the rest of the world because it's a worldwide problem and you can't solve worldwide problems by building fences and trying to hunker down inside your national border. So I'm looking for leadership and uh, it's gonna be a tough couple of months till we get to January, but we gotta change. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, ahead, Brick. I'm just gonna close with one thing. I, I, apparently yesterday, Election Day was also National Sandwich Day. And Stephen Colbert uh, tweeted last night, 
easily the most stressful national sand sandwich day in my lifetime. <laughs> you know, we, like we, we, hey, we Pat, have, if you we want to do our one, crosses to bear. Do one other thing. I, I, on, on the news last night, there was a brief snippet about how U.S. Cyber Command had taken offensive operations against some enemies overseas, i.e. Iran and Russia, maybe China. And I haven't seen much of, about that, but if that's true, I mean, you know, how does that all working and playing out? So something to talk about in the future. Well, yeah, those are the things that, uh, that go on that, that we don't hear about until history books are written unless something leaks out or uh, someone wants to make the point that you know, an, an official leak where uh, they, they tell somebody so that it does get out that so that people know uh, we haven't just been absorbing all the attacks against our cyber systems, uh, both technical and, and uh, disinformation uh, that's been going on. It's, it's clearly a, a serious problem. My last comment, if I could, uh, in just a minute here, is that uh, I'm really dismayed and, and really disappointed that the election campaign uh, did not include a more vigorous uh, discussion of international events. We have some serious problems in, in the world arena. I realize um, people vote their pocketbook and they, they're worried about the pandemic and the economy, but we also have some tremendous problems in climate change, uh, nuclear weapons proliferation, great power rise, expansion of China, uh, the, uh, the revanchism of, of uh, the Russian Federation, our relationship with uh, countries abroad, uh, so there's a whole host of things that really deserve attention. And, the, you know, supposedly the last debate, October 22nd at Belmont, there were a couple of topics, climate change and national security. But when the candidates actually got into the national security, there was a question on China. And the only response was talking about this person's bank account in China and this person's son who had a relationship with China. And really nobody answered a hard question like, how will you deal with an expansionist rising China that is now entering a more aggressive phase in its relation with the United States. These are the questions that on January 21st, the occupant of the Oval Office is gonna to have to contend with. So we'll, we'll continue to, to beat the drum here at the World Affairs Council and, uh, and raise these issues uh, because they're important for citizens to con, uh, consider. So um, last, uh, last shot for you guys. I think we should all. All right. We still have the question for Dr. Walker to, uh, to guide us through at the end of our session here. Go right in the action, which for the first time addressed the disproportionate unique impact of armed conflict on women and girls. The answer is, of course, A, UN Security Council Resolution 1325. Well, just, just for the of record, <laughs> yeah, just for the record, I missed that. <laughs> Passed well, 20 you know, years ago. Passed 20 well, years ago. Well, you know, I mean, it was either either that resolution or the U.S. Congress, uh, and I picked the U.S. Congress okay. answer about well, women. So, so keep taking the quiz, everybody out there, tnwac.org, and while you're there, please sign up to be a member and an attractive coffee mug, and many other benefits will be headed your way. So, uh, thank you all for being with us at our weekly Global News Review. Uh, Dr. Breck Walker, Ambassador Dick Bowers, thank you so much for taking time out of your days. Um, you know, uh, Dick, I think, you know, you might not have gotten enough sleep last night and uh, appreciate you, uh, you checking in with us today. Breck, uh, thanks for coming. 
And we My will pleasure. see everybody. We will see everybody. My next pleasure. Week. Thank you, Pat, for your Thanks, leadership. Everybody. Adios. Bye-bye. Well, that was uh, an interesting uh, report by The Economist, and um, it, it summarizes what's going on in uh, Xinjiang province. Um, I, I would note uh, a, a couple of things. One is the uh, surveillance system in Xinjiang is, is probably uh, the, the Chinese surveillance system on, on steroids, but uh, it is not exclusive to Xinjiang uh, province. It's uh, ubiquitous in China that uh, surveillance, facial recognition, uh, accumulating big data, uh, knowing who's where, when, uh, that's, that's all going on. I had a friend who was flying into Beijing before the pandemic and walked up to a kiosk and before they could enter their boarding pass or visa information or any, any data, the kiosk uh, lit up uh, with uh, their full account. Uh, it, knew, it knew who they were approaching the kiosk without any uh, interaction between the individual and, and the kiosk. So that's, that's just one example of uh, how big data is being used to keep track of, of people, not just foreigners, but uh, Chinese as well. Uh, there's a system in, in China called the social credit system. Uh, Dick, uh, Breck, I don't know if you, you've heard of this, yep. where uh, big data is used to track uh, the behavior of individuals and corporations Etc., uh, with the aim of building a trusted society in which people uh, adhere to uh, the rules, uh, and it, it accumulates things. If you uh, if you jaywalk, it, it will uh, start to accumulate points. If you pay your taxes late, uh, there's points that go into the system, mm -hmm. and there there are reports that people have been denied the ability to get on a, a plane or a train because they didn't have enough social uh, credits in, in the system to, to allow them to be a trusted individual. And, and as, as punishment, they were not permitted to, uh, to do this or that, uh, that thing. Uh, but getting back to the Uyghurs, um, uh, we've, we've got a, a serious issue here of how to address that uh, given the current climate between Washington and Beijing. Uh, the, the Chinese are not going to tolerate anybody interfering in their internal affairs. So the likelihood that uh, the United States will be able to uh, change behavior in this regard is, uh, what, would you, what would you guys say about near zero? Um, well, I don't, uh, to, to change behavior is, is obviously the ultimate Goal, but to stand up for liberal beliefs in the world and, and a system of democracy where individuals count is something, you know, we need to lay down that marker. The Chinese basically, uh, it seems to me and others, I think, uh, stability and economic advancement are more important than an individual's freedom. And that's antithetical to what at least our forefathers and what this country has stood for since it started out. In the future, you know, security, because people are insecure, they will gravitate to someone who promises them some security. But it's a, it's a real conflict between two different worldviews 
you know, individual freedom and liberty and the worth of a particular individual and or are you part of the of a, of a collective and as long as the leadership gives you security and economic advancement you're expected to toe the line and and i think the key word in the uh, stability equation there is uh, total control of the communist party yes um they're they are not going to tolerate any any pushback to uh, to their authority uh anywhere in china xinjiang hong kong wherever well, I mean, go ahead, Brent. I was just going to say it's it's interesting though that with all the mass migrations of meaningfully sized populations throughout Western from other places throughout Western Europe uh, and uh, parts of Asia, it's interesting that issues are being raised that haven't been raised before in terms of uh, that are that are from a government perspective national security issues. And if there were a large separatist movement. Uh, to develop in uh, northwestern China, that would present some problems for the Chinese government and even human rights advocates like, uh, if I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi in, uh, in Myanmar, uh, she has come out for not as bad as the Chinese, but you know certainly has been in favor of, so it's just interesting some of these issues that are raised now that are modern day issues that governments are, and again, I'm not in any way condoning the Chinese at all, but the governments are dealing with issues that uh, are, are difficult ones right now. Well, yeah, you I know, think the, in the case the, of Aung San Suu Kyi, she, um, she was elected to uh, uh, the head of government there, even though the military is, is clearly behind what's going on in Myanmar, but she went to the UN and, and openly defended the government's actions against the Rohingya, which uh, are basically ethnic cleansing, pushing them out into Bangladesh uh, raiding villages, so there, there's been uh, open uh, genocide in, in the country, and, and she's uh, stood up. She's a Nobel laureate. Uh, there was uh, a movement among uh, some activists to uh, to strip her of her title of uh, Nobel laureate. So uh, you're right. There's there's uh, being a human rights crusader, and then there's you know, uh, towing the line within your own government. So, well, one one of the things that the Chinese are trying to do is basically extinguish Uyghur culture. I mean, first off, the idea that there, you know, that there can be Muslims practicing their religion is antithetical to the control of the Communist Party. And I think there's been there part of this effort on the part of the Chinese for Uyghur women to marry a Han Chinese man so that they can eventually dilute the Uyghur culture and ethnicity. So this is you know, I, blatant racism, basically, is what this is all about. Well, and there have been involuntary sterilizations of uh, Uyghur women. Yes, exactly. So the question is, what, what do you do? The, uh, the US government is uh, you know, going toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with China over so many issues, and, and, and this is uh, one of one of uh, many issues. It, it certainly is uh, at the top of the list in importance, along with uh, security and other issues. Uh, there's talk of uh, boycotting the 2022 Winter Olympic Games in, in China, um, trade sanctions. Uh, what, what's, what's the view from uh, the State Department, Ambassador? You lay down a marker, you tell them this is unacceptable and it's gonna impact adversely our relationship. It doesn't mean we stop talking to them, but uh, you have a whole panoply of kinds of things. As you mentioned, you can boycott this or 
part of tariff on that. I think in the in the bully pulpits of the world, we need to start engaging again. I understand that China and Russia last week became were elected to the UN Human Rights Council. Well, both of these countries have horrible records. But the way the UN is currently structured and the way the US is no longer leading in the UN like we did in the past, these kinds of things will happen. And China will push its development model, which is we provide you security, safety, and economic growth, and we provide a country you can be proud of. So just shut up and toe the line. Well, that's currently not the idea of a, you know, liberty as we, we understand it and the right of an individual to pursue his or her own path to the life they want to have. Not a good year for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It is not. No, it's not. All right. We need Eleanor Roosevelt the, to come back and uh, you know help us out in some of these. I, I think the footnote uh, moving on from uh, China and the Uyghurs is that um, uh, there's there's a marked increase in the suppression, <clears throat> excuse me, of human rights around the world as COVID nineteen provides a lot of autocratic uh, regimes or uh, autocratic wannabes uh, the cover of uh, suppressing human rights. So, you know, we've seen even in places like India where the, uh, uh, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi is uh, uh, evoking aggressive Hindu nationalism and the, uh, the Muslim minority there, if you can call 300 million people a minority, um, are, uh, are basically second-class citizens. Likewise, in the Philippines, uh, Rodrigo Duterte is uh, violating every every uh, canon of uh, human dignity and murder campaigns against criminal suspects, whether they are or aren't. Uh, Brazil, Thailand, Hungary, uh, other other countries around the world are are taking advantage of the cover of COVID to uh, put down demonstrations. There was uh, even in Israel, there was an effort to put down a demonstration. Uh, using COVID as uh, the reason to prevent people from protesting uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and his uh, being charged for various uh, crimes there. Uh, so, gentlemen, any, any comments uh, before we move on about the, the state of the world? Strong just... men love fear. Whenever there's fear and insecurity, Somebody can come around and say, I will take care of that. I will make it good for you. And there are people, unfortunately, out there who listen, including in the United States. Well, and the one thing, uh, good point. And the one thing I would add, Pat, is we've talked many times on this program about uh, the lack of U.S. leadership, in my opinion, at least under the Trump administration, global leadership has, uh, has resulted in some chaotic conditions throughout the world. And I think maybe this is, especially true in this area where President Trump from time to time not only says I'll do business with dictators, but he actually compliments them on uh, the kind of people they are and the policies they follow. And it, I can't imagine anything that's more encouraging of greater suppression than that kind of attitude coming from the U.S. Yeah. Right. Uh, the Economist had an interesting chart in their article about the Uyghurs and, and human rights around the world. Uh, the United States among those uh, countries around the world that uh, is a weaker uh, democracy uh, since the, the pandemics, uh, uh, the pandemic started back in, in the springtime. So um, that's about all you can say about that. So let's, uh, let's move on 
to our uh, our third topic. Uh, we've got just a few minutes to uh, to briefly talk uh, about the uh, presidential debates, and we have uh, here in Nashville, Tennessee, coming up. Uh, let's uh, switch gears here. Uh, the presidential debate at uh, Belmont University uh, tomorrow night. It's the would have been the third um, third debate in the series, but uh, they skipped last week due to the uh, illness of President Trump from COVID-19. Uh, he didn't want to do a uh, remote debate, so that one was scrapped. And we're left with um, the event on the 22nd tomorrow night at uh, Belmont University. And these are the, the topics there. Uh, the Trump administration, the Trump campaign said that the third debate uh, should have been on foreign policy. The debate commission, um, the head of the debate commission said that uh, there was really no precedent for that. So these are the topics that uh, will be discussed. COVID-19, American families, race in America, climate change, national security, and, uh, and leadership. Dick, what do you think about um, not having an evening devoted uh, strictly to foreign policy, but uh, uh, including a number of other topics into uh, the debate tomorrow night? Well, the, the, the topics that you have up there, some of them can lead into that discussion on foreign policy topics. I think the fact that there's not something really focused hard on that is reality of where the U.S. is in the world at the moment. We do not have a glaring, gee, we got fire, ring the alarms, we need to take something, care of something in the world. So we're kind of tidying up the overextension that we had in Afghanistan and Iraq mm -hmm. and other places in the world. Um, but the American public is more interested in, I think, jobs, future, COVID-19, schools. So we're focused fairly inwardly at the moment. And I think that'll be reflected in the, in the discussion. Although I will posit that President Trump will have a list of success stories on his foreign policy. And he will tout them out, like you know, moving our embassy to Jerusalem, getting this, the Gulf states to recognize Israel. It looks like we're on the cusp of signing an extension agreement with the Russians on the New START treaty, things of that sort. So he'll have a punch list. Oh, and don't forget, he renegotiated NAFTA. You know, I mean, some of these things are kind of, wait a minute, what is this really a success story? Anyway, that, that's my, my take on it, Pat. Breck, any thoughts on the, the debate tomorrow night? What are you, what are you looking uh, forward to hearing from one side or the other on international issues? Well, I'd love to uh, hear some discussion about their respective strategies towards, uh, both candidates, their respective strategy, strategies towards China, American relations with China going forward. Uh, it seems like that's one of the two or three biggest foreign policy issues that uh, uh, the presidential, whoever the next presidential administration is, will be dealing with. So I'd definitely like to hear about that. Plus, Pat, I heard there's a rumor, maybe this is false, that uh, as chairman of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, there'll be your finger on the mic mute button during the debate. <laughs> I was wondering about that. Well, uh, 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 I'm not chairman, but but thank you for, for that. Uh, yeah, we're, we, we are having a debate party. We'll mention that here in, in just a second. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we will not be uh, 
cutting the mic off anyone. I think, <laughs> I think it's illustrative to see that the candidates uh, in their interactions, uh, I think people are calling the first debate a, a dumpster fire. Hopefully we won't have that tomorrow night. They are, they are turning off the mic for the first two minutes of each of the six segments in which uh, each candidate uh, provides two minutes uh, to answer a question. So uh, the, the moderator will be cutting the mic for that portion, but then the rest of the debate will be uh, back and forth. Um, we, we might as well talk about the debate watch. Uh, we're, we're running uh, long on time here, but I wanna make sure that everybody uh, knows that we, uh, the World Affairs Council, in cooperation with the Tennessean uh, and uh, their project uh, on civility, Tennessee, uh, David Plazas, the uh, editor of the opinion engagement section of uh, the Tennessean and USA Today. Uh, he and I will be uh, kicking off a debate watch party at 7.30 p.m. Central Time tomorrow evening. We've got uh, a great uh, collection of guest speakers. Uh, panelists will talk about the mechanics of elections, campaigns. We've got some uh, experienced uh, people from senatorial and presidential campaigns, um, think tanks in Washington, and uh, some local folks here. Uh, high school student is going to talk about the youth perspective on what's going on. So that should be a great lead up to the debate. So you can catch the pre-debate watch party at 7.30 p.m. And then we will have embedded in our Zoom meeting room the actual candidates debate. And we will be conducting uh, debate bingo. And we're putting together uh, <laughs> bingo cards with all of the uh, possible terms. Uh, from Bigley to come on man, um, whatever you think uh, might be the appropriate uh, utterance of, of one of the other candidates. Uh, so that should be fun during the, uh, the debate and then we'll follow up uh, with a half hour of post-debate conversation. We'll do some uh, surveys of, of the audience. And uh, just uh, as, as a marker here, we have broken our uh, attendance uh, level for a Zoom room We're we're over uh, 120 attendees. It'll be an interesting management problem, but we will endeavor to <laughs> let everybody get their voice in in the chat room or raising your hand. Or you have the mute button, Pat. You have the mute. <laughs> <laughs> or, or in, in other way participating. Uh, so, uh, so join us for pre-debate at 7:30, the debate, and debate bingo at uh, eight o'clock. We'll watch the debate and then have a conversation uh, afterwards. Uh, we get some. Uh, Messages here in uh, in the box. Uh, let's see, we've got questions. Uh, Sana uh, asks, uh, hair from Uyghur female prisoners uh, is making its way to our market. So that's not a question, but a comment. Austin Travis uh, says that, what's the likelihood of the ICC's initial investigation of China's actions against the Uyghurs moving forward for, to a full trial. And if that did happen, what would be the impact? Uh, would the US support that even though we aren't an ICC member? Some general questions for the Gambia case against China and the ICJ as well. Uh, Dick, I don't know, and, and Austin, you, you probably know the answer. Uh, I suspect China is not a party to the ICC. Um, We'd have to do a. I quick suspect the same. I you know, I don't know for sure, but I would suspect they are also not. Yeah, Austin is correct that the United States is not a signatory to the ICC. In fact, the uh, State Department has uh, sanctioned um, some 
figures from the, uh, the court over a case involving Israel. Um, and uh, there's, there's been some pushback on that. Uh, so we'll have to uh, take a look at that. But uh, I, I think the answer would be that China would uh, resist any um, interference from anybody, uh, the, the UN or a sovereign country, um, as far as interference in its internal affairs. I agree. Now, now whether the ICC uh, has any legitimacy in China, we'll, uh, we'll have to check that out. But I think that's, uh, that's the answer. Um, Michelle Chan asks uh, or comments, the US um, and Saudi Arabian five-year wars against Yemen creates the biggest humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Million children uh, will be starved to death, a big violation of human rights. Yes, I, I think um, uh, human rights organizations are, are standing up against uh, the, uh, the campaign in uh, Yemen between uh, the Houthis, uh, the Yemeni government, uh, the Saudi military, the UAE, UAE was involved in a larger way, has pulled back some, but that's, uh, Yemen was in terrible trouble to begin with in terms of its economic development. There's a place where water resources um, are, are terribly taxed. Uh, the war has not uh, contributed in any good way to resolving that problem. So uh, yes, um, uh, Michelle, you're correct that uh, the humanitarian situation in Yemen begs for an intervention and a resolution of, of the battle there. Unfortunately, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of the, uh, the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, Saudi Arabia claims uh, that Iran is involved in arming the Houthis. Uh, there's been ample evidence of that. Uh, Iran claims that uh, Saudi Arabia has no business there. So um, it, it's probably going to involve a larger resolution of differences between Tehran and Riyadh over uh, their competition before the Yemeni uh, situation is resolved. Dick? No, I was just going to say, I think it reflects the fact that you know, we have been supporting the Saudis in this effort from the get-go in terms of the, the supplying munitions and equipment and various kinds of things. And basically, it has not become a political issue in the United States, except yeah. for particular uh, groups who might want to try to rally pro or con. But Congress hasn't done anything about this. Uh, it's not in people talking about, gee, we got to take care of this kind of thing. So it reflects the isolationism, if you will, or the inward focus of uh, the American public. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, move along here. We got to get to uh, Breck's question. Uh, but first, I want to mention uh, that if you're not already aware of our election 2020 series, please take a look at the uh, archives that we have of these panels. Uh, we really can't portray in this slide the quantity and quality of speakers that uh, came together uh, for these programs, um, ambassadors, uh, specialists from think tanks, uh, scholars, military people uh, across the board. Uh, some top tier individuals uh, got involved in this uh, election 2020 series. And all of these are in the archives at the youtube.com slash TNWAC. So check them out. We still have the election watch party, uh, the debate watch party and part two of America's place in the world. That will be uh, a week from tomorrow. Ambassador Tom Pickering and Ambassador John Kornblum uh, moderated by Professor Tom Schwartz. And then uh, several weeks uh, after 
the election will have a, a special program called uh, What's Next? So that's it. We're going to uh, jump to our question. Uh, gentlemen, any other comments before we work our way out? No, thank you. Uh, okay. Well, we'll get, uh, we'll get on the, the question. Breck, over to you. All right. The question was, again, which country is uh, going to have youthful demonstrations wrapped around a significant anniversary on October the 25th? And the answer is D, Iraq. Great. Okay. Just uh, one, one last uh, note that uh, we are very pleased to uh, mark our uh, 100th podcast and 60th webinar. So uh, we look forward to bringing you more programs uh, in, the, in the Global Tennessee podcast series and in our video archive at youtube.com slash TNWAC. And of course, you can go to our website and uh, look, uh, scroll down and see what's coming up on the calendar and uh, uh, sign up for our programs uh, still to come. Uh, gentlemen, thanks so much. Happy uh, 100th. Uh, it, Thank you. It looks, it looks good on all of us. <laughs> yeah, you surprised me with that picture you dug up there. About, so I, <laughs> I'm going to have to find one of you in your in your submarine outfit there. Okay, something. well, good good luck with that. <laughs> have a good week, day. gentlemen. Thanks, good to see you all. Everybody, be safe. Thanks for coming. <laughs>